Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. According to a 2014 study published by the National Education Association, approximately 160,000 teens skip school every day because of bullying. In many cases, the experience of cruelty or isolation in American schools schools has led young people to commit suicide or worse. What are the implications of the New Testament for American high schools? How can church school teachers equip their students to confront high school life with the wisdom of scripture? Guest speaker Thomas Drennan talks about Roman paganism, its parallels with the culture of modern high school, and the pressure that the story of Jesus Christ places on both. We encourage parents to share this week's podcast with their teenagers. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 28 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We're coming off a great weekend. We had some of our dear friends from seminary visit here in the Twin Cities. It was a weekend of long discussions, interesting debates. Anyways, we're here with our friend and colleague, Thomas Drennan. You teach church school in, mm-hmm. in the Greek Archdiocese. Where, what parish are you at, Thomas? St. Constantine and Helen in Cleveland Heights. Cleveland Heights, okay. And so we were talking earlier today about the way you contextualize the biblical critique of paganism for young adults by identifying paganism in a Roman setting in late antiquity with your idea of the modern high school as a microcosm of Roman paganism and the Roman setting. So this seemed really interesting to us because we ourselves in the Ephesus school are always struggling with how to bring complex concepts from scripture, but also to bring knowledge from the historical critical analysis of the background of these texts to young audience. So we wanted to hear you talk about that today. So I guess one of the things that you find with younger audiences is strangely, they don't have much concept of the ancient Near East or Roman culture. What a surprise. But one of the presuppositions that just about everybody has is that Roman paganism is different to the way the world operates today. And I think that that's actually not quite true. We think we live in a Christian world and that the gospel operates, but by and large, if you ask most kids what are the fundamental operating procedures of high school, you'll end up with something that approximates the systems of the Roman deities. What ultimately high school is all about is popularity and what gets you popularity. And those things are the same things that get you success in the Roman world. And really, modern Western society, those things are money, skills, like athletic skills, beauty, clothing. You know, but basically there's a parallel between those things and Roman deities. And if 
you ask kids, do they apply the gospel in high school, the immediate reaction is going to be, of course not. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's interesting that there's almost a sense in which that's a ludicrous idea, that the gospel and church and all of those things are not to be played out in high school. I mean, it kind of makes sense because the gospel is opposing the Roman system of doing things. And if there is a link between the way the Romans do things and human nature mm-hmm. there's no better cauldron of human nature than high school yeah so naturally you're going to see these links and naturally the gospel is going to oppose the system itself well and let me just say that adults struggle with the way that the gospel opposes their biology exactly with teenagers their biology is raging so it's all the more complex I <laughs> yeah think. it is i mean right. absolutely these things aren't different in the world of adults but i think we've as adults have subsumed it more, you know? For both high schoolers and adults, especially Christians, the concept of idolatry is really abstract because it sounds so long ago and so far away. We haven't been sacrificing anything for 2,000 years. Mm. Sacrificing stuff for some kind of thing, it sounds so primitive and so backwards and so distant from anything that we do that that makes a lot of the Bible too abstract for people. So in the podcast, I talk a lot about Hosea because he makes this critique against idolatry. And he says, you're making your gods out of your own hands. But nobody on the planet thinks that they're making gods out of their own hands. Like Nobody thinks that. So how could this apply to anybody? What I tell people is in Hosea, when it's talking about idolatry, it's for the sake of wealth. What do you do in order that you can become safe, secure, and wealthy? Those rights, so to speak, that you go through, that's your idolatry. I think that in our system of economics, people use wealth to acquire popularity through Mm -hmm. marketing, by gaining influence. It's all connected to this idea in the Pauline letters, especially Galatians, the problem of pleasing men. Mm-hmm. You want to please men in order to gain ascendancy over men. Mm-hmm. So this is the dynamic. It's the raw dynamic in a high school setting. Mm. Well, and you know, even moving through the ranks of any organization from high school on mm-hmm. requires some sort of hazing. And it's interesting that hazing always has kind of a ritual element to it, that you do the same things as the last people did in order to get to that level. It was institutionalized in the Roman Empire in the office of the patrician. I mean, they were professional bullies. There's no question. You see it that Paul is turning the tables in his letters, and he's the one from a position of weakness who's hazing the powerful. I think that that plays into it. If you look at Rome, you look at any pagan culture, it doesn't have to be Rome. The notion of who is blessed by the gods, who is favored by the gods, is a measure of success. So if you are wealthy, you must be blessed by the god of wealth, whichever system you're talking about. If you win, obviously, if you win a battle, your god is favoring you. You know, if you look at the ancient Near East, your god has defeated the other god, blah, 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 whatever. But in the Roman system, there is really only one pantheon. So you are blessed if you're victorious. You are blessed if you're beautiful. You are blessed. You are favored. If you have power if you have success, if you are skilled, if you have anything good going for you, that is the sign that you're blessed by the gods. So if you happen to exercise that power in bullying somebody else, that's simply a measure of you being blessed and them being cursed. So you look at the flip side of that, and it's who is not favored by the gods. Well, automatically, if you're poor, if you're sick, if you're a loser, if you're a slave, you have all of these things probably going for you. 
generally speaking, you're either born into slavery or you are the consequence of having lost in war. So all of these factors play into you being a loser and it's a reflection of you having been cursed. Simple as that. Enter the New Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Mm -hmm. what's going on here? How is the New Testament grappling with this in Roman society? The gospel takes all of these notions of what it means to be blessed and what it means to be cursed and flips it on its ear. Because you have a slave born in not even a real barn. You know, he's born in a cave. He's stuck in what the animals are supposed to be eating. He's the opposite of rich. He's been dragged across the countryside because somebody tells him to. He is a workman. He doesn't have any of the signs of blessing from any of the significant powers that be. Even if you want to look at it from the Jewish perspective, there's elements in which he surely is cursed, obviously, being on the tree. He is the least kingly. You have to really understand that in order to hear the irony of the birth narrative, Mm -hmm. where you see him in the tomb, in the cave, being worshipped with a star above him that Mm. normally would be the auspices of being a Caesar. You have the angels proclaiming God's word that this person is above all other people. This makes no sense. And you really have to understand this and say that, oh yeah, the guy who just got dumped in the trash can (laughs) at school, blessed is he unto ages of ages. (laughs) Amen. Right, right. It makes no sense. Right. And literally, you lift this star from the myth of the rise to ascendancy Mm. of Caesar in the Roman legends. And you put it on top of the kid in the trash can. But also, from the Jewish perspective, the king who supposedly should be blessed, certainly not in the prophetic tradition, but the, the basic understanding of how things work for your average Jew, the king is blessed. The king wants to get rid of him. He's not supported by anybody in authority. It's the shepherds from the fields who come in. It's the foreigners who come in. He has to flee from where he theoretically should be safe in Israel to Egypt. The whole story is flipped on its head. Not just safe in that land. He should be ruling that land. And he runs away. There's no more ignominious way for a future king to be in the land than have to flee on a donkey with his mom and dad. That reminds me of, what's that Monty Python movie? Brave, brave, brave Sir Robin. He runs away. (laughs) This is the hero? If you actually are paying attention, it's almost embarrassing, Uh humanly speaking, what a weakling the Messiah is in the New Testament. And then this is what you present to a Roman audience. This is the victorious guy. As the son of God. When you think about it, it's not only the guy who's dumped in the trash can. It's the guy who's dumped in the trash can, then some strange people from outside pull him out, and he runs away. He should be the head of student council. I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, captain of the football team. Well, it's very interesting, because if he was captain of the football team, would he win or lose? They'd lose every game. They'd lose every game. Exactly. And there'd be more and more boosters every week. Oh, good job. He's losing again. We've kept up our perfect streak. <laughs> No, I mean, I I was recently at the Louvre and you see the statues of the Roman and Greek gods. Mm -hmm. And what you would be is you would be big and strong with Mm -hmm. perfectly proportioned muscles and good health and the perfect age Mm -hmm. and beautiful and sexual Mm -hmm. and wealthy and everything would be at its prime. Yeah. This is the trap, I think, of the neo-pagan culture, Mm -hmm. children, but classical paganism. The whole thing is built around a false understanding of biology. 
The false understanding is that things develop and grow and become stronger and ascend to some kind of perfect strength and perfect form. And the idea is that something that is weak is fulfilled in this progression towards strength. I mean, you have it in American mythology with the superhero uh, mm. myths are, are insanely popular with Americans. You want to believe that some wimp from Kansas will suddenly be able to dodge bullets, fly through the sky and save poor victims, which is, you know, you're either projecting your ego into Superman mm -hmm. or you're projecting it into the victim in the story. We want to believe that story. We want a savior of America because in the prophets, we want to feel safe and secure. Absolutely. And so now all of a sudden you, comes the New Testament, which is the expression of this critique of our lust for security. And I think that's the same thing that's playing out in high school. Why do you want to be cool, strong, all of safety. these things? Security, safety. But, and it, so now you have this wimp Jesus who can't save you. You're told he saves you, but it's not the way you, I mean, suddenly, not only is he not aspiring to greatness, there's nothing to aspire to. He's revealing actually how our biology works. We all go back to the dust from which we were taken. Paganism, in essence, is a denial of reality in this sense. It's trying to create a system that allows you to not accept the fact that you're already decaying from the moment you come out of your mother's womb. You're going back to the dust from which you were taken. So this is a concept that's familiar to the three of us, the way in which the New Testament brings the prophetic critique to bear on Roman society mm -hmm. in this unkingship or anti-kingship or anti-idolatry expression of kingship in Jesus Christ. How do you bring that to bear then on the everyday experience of high school that your students are well, grappling I think, with? I think the fact is that they actually do understand it. They may not know anything about Roman culture, but they do understand high school. And they do understand that the things that would get them popular, the things that would identify them as cool or whatever, these are fairly obvious. They understand what these are. And they also would still somehow fall into the same trap of seeing these people as blessed. So then you look at Jesus and what's going on? I mean, if you look at the early Christians, apart from obviously martyrdom, which was undercutting the whole sense of how Romanness worked, what was it that the Christians were doing that was ripping down this system. And I guess fundamentally it's, it's charity. It's looking after the poor, the orphans, the widows, those who are outsiders, the classic example, the, those children who are exposed, you know, and setting up orphanages. This is a classic Christian concept that had not existed before. And the pagans viewed this as actually a bad thing. We forget this, but if you've got a person that is poor they are poor because they are cursed people still talk that way today they do absolutely so if you're helping the person that is cursed you are actually putting yourself in the firing line if you like between the deity and this person that is cursed you know it's going to rub off if you act against the gods the gods are going to bring you down the christians are simply doing what jesus wants them to do but because the contrast in expectations between the biblical worldview where we're asked the poor the orphans the widows the outsiders the poor the orphans the widows the outsiders look after them that's the whole point you stand up for the kid who is thrown into the trash can and say hey stop the person who is picked on the person who is abused the person i mean bullying is such an issue there have been suicides because people have been bullied yeah. they've killed themselves yeah. so there's a real need 
to protect these people. These are the outsiders. These are the poor. These are the weak that anybody who has any strength whatsoever is supposed to protect. As Paul says, those who are strong ought not to please themselves, but to bear the weaknesses of the weak. It's, and it's anti-Roman. It's anti-Roman. Well, it's anti... I think these systems are universal. Yes. Theoretically, we're not a pagan culture, but these are still the same things that people measure success by. As we would say, it's the same function. Someone who fancies themselves a Christian may still engage in a discussion about how it's the fault of someone who needs a welfare check that they're in the situation they're in and then proceed to shame them in order to justify themselves. Well, if you're shaming the weak in order to justify yourself, you sound a lot to me like a Roman patrician. Exactly. It's institutional bullying. We still have the same function. I've preached about this at St. Elizabeth where you look in the media, they always, classically in American media, you always have a woman who everybody makes fun of. There is always a Mary Magdalene in the media, and it's always some vulnerable teenage girl who was exploited for someone else's profit and then is the butt of the joke and thrown away. And it's the same mechanism as what they would do with prostitutes in the ancient world. Are you going to stand up for the kid who's bullied? Right. Are you going to stand up for the kid who's tea? That is hard. The kid who sits by themselves at lunch. The kid who's ignored. Yeah. That's even worse. Let's look at the person who's isolated. They're not being picked on. They're not being beaten. They're just isolated. You know, we used to, as kids, always make a point of sitting someplace different every day in the lunchroom and never being pinned down sitting with one particular group. This is what Paul is arguing about in Galatians. This is the tension between Peter and Paul in Acts. Who do you sit with? Well, there's the notion that that somehow makes you unclean. If you're sitting with the... If you're yeah. sitting with the uncool, that uncoolness rubs off. It reminds me also of... I mean, if I can push it one step forward, this system is incompatible with love mm-hmm. and self-sacrificial love. And what it reminds yeah. me of, strangely enough, is this scene from The Breakfast Club where they talk about what's going to happen after we leave this room. Are we still going to be friends? And the popular girl says, we can't. Yeah. And the jock says... It's amazing that, that she says that. And yeah. the jock says, no, I would want to. And she says, no... You would act like you were his friend, and then as soon as he left, you would make fun of him to your friend so people wouldn't actually think you were his friend. Mm. But the one person who says, no, I consider you my friends. I would never do that to you. And he uses an expletive, and he says, this is a horrible thing to do to people. And the girl says, but that's because your friends look up to us. Yeah. So you can do that. But... He is the only one who's actually able to love the others because he's already at the bottom. Mm. Right. He's got nothing to lose socially, so he can love whoever he wants. But the people who have everything to lose socially, they can't afford to. Correct. So power and love are incompatible. Absolutely. And then you still have to question his motivation for being nice to them. Is it to climb the slippery ladder of popularity? But yes. that's my point going mm. back to this tension, right? In the gospel you're not ascending you're not growing you're not climbing you're Mm -hmm. not achieving you are being consigned to your own failure and if you look at paganism the only people who can follow the example of the gods are the ones with the power all right this is also how high school works The, the ones who are cool are the ones who are cool and the aspiration is to somehow get there now christianity flips this on its lid 
Because Jesus being born basically as a yob, a servant, a slave, a person who dies on the cross, is not victorious in any way, opens up the concept of being like God to everybody from the bottom up. Except the expectation allows the people at the bottom to remain at the bottom and for the people at the top to identify with the people at the bottom rather than the other way around. It's a climb to the bottom instead of a climb to the top. It decimates the whole system. Yeah, destroys it. Because the one thing you don't have in the breakfast club setting is you have the person at the top who wouldn't risk being put in the bottom. Mm -hmm. You have the person at the bottom who would be kind to the one who's higher than him and no one knows what his motivations might be. Mm -hmm. The only one you could tell is if somewhere up at the top and they chose to be at the bottom. And that would be the only person that you could consider honest uh-huh. in their love because right. they have given up everything they could have gained. If you're already at the bottom, you got nothing to lose. If you're already at the top and you want to stay at the top, you don't want to lose what you got. But the person who has everything and then loses it, that's what makes it significant. And that's why I think in Philippians, this statement about who Jesus is, that he started on high and yes. became a slave, is absolutely essential understanding how he functions Mm -hmm. because the only way you can break with that system is if you begin on high and you choose to go to the bottom and like you said Thomas Mm. identify with the one at the bottom it puts to shame even the weak because if you are weak and you see somebody who's supposed to be so great come and put himself on your level suddenly you yourself feel shame in the same way that the wealthy and the powerful should feel shame So it's also interesting about the gospel. It does turn it upside down to break the back of the wealthy, but it doesn't let those who are weak off of the hook because Mm -hmm. the judgment is always multi-directional. You could say bi-directional, but it's more complex than that. But it's always, it's Babylon is under judgment, Israel's under judgment. Mm -hmm. Whether you're the victim or the oppressor, the human being from his youth up is corrupt in Genesis, so everyone has to be opposed. I mean, if you look at the high school system, everybody wants to be the oppressor. Yeah. They want to be yeah. the bully. Well, they want yeah. to be the cool person. And see, yes. and they're, even they're, when they're at the bottom. Even when they're at the bottom. And it's just as, that's the thing. It's just as evil to want it as it exactly. is to do it. There's a story from the Desert Fathers that testifies to this idea in Scripture very well. And so I think that it's important in light of Scripture to see how this story is correct. One of the, the abbots was very rich and he decided to give before he was the abbot he was an aristocrat he mm. gave up everything and went away to the monastery and when he died or when he was very sick they put him on a board and he had a pillow and one of the young monks complained he's supposed to be this great ascetic why does he get a pillow right <laughs> this is very this great desert father story and the other monks said do you know what he gave up in order to come into her monastery you came from nothing and you had nothing and now you're going to be upset about his pillow Mm -hmm. he had the finest of everything which he gave up and all that's left is this one pillow so what they do is this man and his one pillow put to shame the one poor person who says scriptural because what happens with the poor man is now the poor man becomes a victim and what does he say look at everything that i've given up and he says no you actually haven't given up anything it's not just that you have nothing it's that you've given up everything and again going back to Philippians Philippians shows that Jesus gave up everything he had everything up to the glory of God and he gave it up there's no me against the man it's you are the man 
as the prophet said to King David, you're the problem. Anyways, this has been fantastic. It's probably the first podcast where I was tempted to just keep talking and not necessarily talk about scripture. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's so good to see you, Thomas. It's really, really a pleasure. And I hope this isn't the last time we have you on our program. I hope that we can make a point of continuing these conversations, hearing more about your students, your church school efforts, and all of this good stuff. So anyways, thanks so much for talking. It's very good to see you. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Thanks. Take care. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.